Tonight we're looking at Psalm 85, a psalm for revival. I have here, if we're not careful, we can, life can become a real downer. We can lose all sense of joy. We know that Philippians 4, 4, it says rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. But uh, sometimes that's an effort. And that's not our natural disposition. Uh, it's not our attitude towards the Lord. And uh, I have here tonight that revival is needed when God's people have lost their joy in Christ. Uh, when we simply do not have that joy and that desire to rejoice in him. What is in view in this psalm is not just individuals being down, but the people of God as a whole being down. And perhaps being down is, is not the best expression. But I, I'm talking about a, a sense of dissatisfaction with God, a sense of dissatisfaction with one's own experience. And it results then in a dissatisfaction with God. For notice... Exodus chapter 16, the children of Israel, when they were in the wilderness, were characterized as grumbling and complaining, verse 2. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses, Aaron, in the wilderness. You see the, the extensiveness of this, that it's the whole congregation. It's the people of God as a whole that are grumbling and complaining about, uh, against Moses and against Aaron, and uh, here's, their, here's their gripe, verse 3. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. Better, better we had died in the land of Egypt than we ever left it. But we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this assembly with hunger. So they're dissatisfied. But it's important to keep in mind the irrationality of this dissatisfaction, the inappropriateness of it. First, there is a mischaracterization of their past experience. When they were in Egypt, they were slaves. When they were in Egypt, they were crying out for deliverance. When they were in Egypt, their children were being killed by Pharaoh. And People like Moses were being spared by the uh, midwives, but loads of Israelites were dying. It was a hideous situation. Working hard, not even being supplied as time went on with the straw that they needed to make the bricks. It was terrible. But this redactionist history, this this change, this looking back at the past and totally, totally eschewing what has taken place, where they forgot where they came from and all the difficulties that they had experienced. They talked about sitting around meat pots with the bread to the full, like they're sitting around a campfire singing Kumbaya Law and life was just great. Well, it wasn't. Well, it wasn't. So they mischaracterized their past and they mischaracterized their future. For it says in the end of verse 3, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Well, that's not right either. They were on their way to the promised land. 
They were going to be in a land that is flowing with milk and honey. Yes, things were hard at the present time, but they had a glorious future. But they didn't look at that glorious future. They said, they're going to die. They're going to die. They weren't going to die. Now, ironically enough, <laughs> they do die because they reject the promises of God and they reject going into the promised land, etc., etc. But God's intention it's not that they're going to die in the wilderness. That God's intention for them is that they're going to inherit this, this promised land. But they forgot God's promises. And they forgot God's faithfulness. These are a people who had witnessed the plagues. These are a people who experienced the plagues. These are a people who saw the difference between the Egyptians and God's people, the way in which God spared them and didn't spare the Egyptians. These were a people that forgot that they had crossed the Red Sea on dry ground. These are a people that forgot about the blessings and goodness of God because they're hungry. And that became the focal point. The displeasure over their present circumstances. And they let their present circumstances determine what their relationship was going to be to, to God. And so they expressed their displeasure with Moses and Aaron's leadership because they didn't like being in this wilderness, being hungry. And, of course, we're going to know about the Lord's provision, et cetera, et cetera. But this was the condition of the people of God. So theme tonight is, is I want to talk to you about some questions concerning revival. So some questions concerning revival answered. First, who are the proper candidates for revival? Who needs to be revived? Well, first of all, the proper candidate for revival is one who is born again, one whose sins have been forgiven. Notice verse 6. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? So the us are God's people, those that belong to him. Revive us. Revive God's people. Psalm 85, verse 1. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin, Selah. So it's clear that the, your people are the redeemed. The people who are saved, if you will. The people who have experienced the forgiveness of their sin. It's clear. It's talking about people who are saved. The prophet, proper candidate for revival is one who is no longer under the wrath of God. Verse 3, you withdrew all your wrath. You withdrew all your wrath. The second statement of verse 3, you turned from your hot anger. So these are people that are no longer 
under the wrath of God as we are no longer under the wrath of God. Again, people born again. Thirdly, revival can be both personal and corporate, but the emphasis is upon corporate revival in this particular psalm. For it says in verse 6, will you not revive us again, your people? So it's talking about the entire congregation. It's talking about the whole people of God. There is a place for personal revival. Psalm 51, David says, restore me under the joy of thy salvation. So we can talk about personal revival, and then we can talk about corporate revival. And tonight my emphasis is on corporate revival because that's what the psalm is primarily talking about, corporate revival. So let us, will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you. Application. So as we are understanding revival in this psalm, Number one, revival is to be distinguished from evangelism. In revival, the need is not to be saved. In revival, the need is to be spiritually renewed and rejoicing in the Lord. Now I say that because in some circles, revival meetings are in fact evangelistic meetings. Uh, there are a lot of Arminian churches that are big on revival meetings. And the emphasis, usually in those revival meetings, is to get saved, to get saved. And one of the reasons, again, verse three, uh, excuse me, number three, again, in some circle, revival meetings are intended for those who have lost their salvation and need to be saved again. That, so that whole Arminian aspect that you can lose your salvation, so you need to get saved again, you're not right with God, you need to get right with God, you need to get saved, all right? That's what is pretty much the American concept of revival. People getting saved, people getting right with God, who are not right with God, who need to get saved probably for the second or third time or more. So we need to understand that in this psalm, we're not talking about evangelism. We're talking about God's people and a spiritual work that is being done in them. But having said that, I invite you to turn with me to Psalm 51. Uh, I'm going to exegete Psalm 51 when we get there uh, in uh, our morning service when we're talking about David's repentance with Bathsheba. Then we're going to look at Psalm 51. Then we're going to look at Psalm 32. There are a number of Psalms that we're going to look at uh, in conjunction with the events that they depict uh, or that uh, they are in reference to in uh, the book of 2 Samuel. Psalm 51 is written out of David's sin with Bathsheba. And uh, it's a psalm of repentance. And if you notice in Psalm 51, verse 12, it says, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. And uphold me with a willing spirit. David is not asking to be saved. He's asking that the joy of his salvation be restored. He'd, he'd lost the joy. He had lost the peace with God because of his sinful acts and behavior. He wants to experience the joy of salvation. 
But what I want to point out to you is the next verse, verse 13, that says, Then I will teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. David says, when, when I receive this joy of my salvation, then I'm going to teach transgressors your way. I, I'm going to talk about my own sinfulness and the misery that it produced and the joy of being forgiven. And David is incredibly true to that. As we have the Psalms, and he tells us of the misery that he went through and the joys of forgiveness. But he says, then I will teach transgressors your way. Verse 13, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. So what we find in the scriptures and historically, that there's often a close social association between revival and evangelistic fervor. And we often see, historically, a working of God among his people that they become spiritually renewed and on fire for the Lord. And there is a great outpouring of the work of the Spirit, and many people are saved. And as we think about our own country and our own nation, and I can't take the time to go through all the history with you tonight, but there are two great periods of revival in our, in our history known as the Great Awakening and the Second Great Awakening. And as you study those works of the Spirit, you will note that it begins in the church and then spreads outside the church. It begins with the people of God and their rejoicing in the Lord and an appreciation for what he has done through the Puritan preaching of the word, such as Jonathan Edwards and, and the outbreaking of the spirit within New England in the churches. And then at the same time, you have people like uh, Whitfield coming and preaching in, the, uh, in the, the fields and to literally thousands of people and you have this great transformation and people being born again and God working. So there is a close association between revival and evangelism. And it shouldn't surprise us because when we're in need of revival, we tend not to be evangelistic. When we are in need of revival and we're griping and complaining about God, we're not in the mood to be telling people about the glories and goodnesses of God. When we're complaining, we're not going to be telling others about how wonderful God is in saving us and blessing us and everything that he has done for us. So there's a close connection between the two although they are, in fact, distinct. And what I'm addressing tonight is this aspect of revival among God's people. So, number two, when is revival needed? When are we in need of restoration? A, when we have fallen into a state of disrepair. Psalm 85, verse 4. 
restore us again, O God of our salvation. The Hebrew word for restore means to cause to return to a former condition. This right relationship with God. The psalmist David said in Psalm 51, verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Uh, David wanted to be restored. He wanted a, a renewed right spirit. This word for restoration, again, this aspect of being in a state of disrepair and needing to be brought back to a former condition. I like cars. Uh, I enjoy watching uh, the Motor Trend Channel. My wife doesn't like it at all, but I enjoy sitting there and, and watching cars be restored. Cars that are incredibly rusty, you know, they're, they're falling apart, they are a junk heap, and it's amazing what these people do with them. And, uh, you know, they're, they're doing all kinds of work, they're cutting out the rust, they're, uh, they are putting in uh, new metal, uh, where that rust existed, uh, they are polishing, they are painting, and they bring those things back better than new, better than what they were when they came out of the factory. It's incredible. They restore them to this brilliant condition. That's what's in view in this song. As Christians, to be restored as good as new, as when we first came to know the Lord and, and were so appreciative of our salvation, and all that God had done for us, when we recognized our, our sinfulness and the blessedness of having been forgiven and for God's grace in our lives to bring him to himself, when we were grateful and thankful people, that's what's in view in this particular psalm, to be restored as good as new. B, revival is needed when we sense that God is displeased with us. Psalm 85, verse 4. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Restore us again, God our Savior, and put away your displeasure toward us. Just the uh, same verse, but I'm giving you a little different translation. See, revival is needed when we have lost sight of our relationship to God. The perceived condition is described. What? Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? The reality had already been proclaimed in verse 3. You withdrew all your wrath, you turned from your hot anger. There's a statement of what is true in the first three verses, and then there's a statement of the perception. Just like the children of Israel, who when they left the land of Egypt, forgot what God had done for them, forgot all the blessings that they enjoyed, so now in this psalm are people who feel like God is angry with them. God is displeased with them. When the psalm says, you're no longer under God's wrath. You're, you are no longer in a state of, of displeasing God. 
And I'm emphasizing in, in Sunday school this whole element of, of God's continued love and grace and mercy to us. But we can lose sight of that. And we can lose sight of the whole concept of grace and move into a, a works mentality because of what we're going through and thinking that, man, I must have done something to deserve this. Or we know, we know of our own sin. We know of our own hearts. We know that there are things that are not right between us and God. We know that we have sinned. But we can lose sight of the forgiveness that we have. We can lose sight of the fact that those consequences have been borne by Christ and now bring them upon ourselves and say, God no longer loves me and I'm under his wrath. Well, it's awfully hard to have joy when that's your perception of what the Christian life is. It's awfully hard to have joy when you are under this sense of guilt and self-condemnation. And it's self-condemnation. And it's what Satan does. He's the accuser of the brethren. <laughs> Satan would love you nothing more than to wallow in your sense of self-deprecation and your own sinfulness. The New Testament application. We're reminded that our blessings in Christ are guaranteed. First Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and following. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So the promised land is yours. And there is nothing that is going to keep you from inheriting the promised land. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Your destination is sure. And all of God's blessings you are going to experience. Ephesians 1 says, we are blessed, past tense, with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Because of what Christ has done, we are in a state of blessedness. Not wrath and not condemnation. We are in a state of blessedness. But our present circumstances can cause us to lose sight of the fact that we're a blessed people. And that we have reason to give thanks. And instead, we see no reason to give thanks. But I go ahead of myself. B, these promised blessings are to be a cause for rejoicing despite our present hardships. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So it's talking about the fact that life is not always easy. And there are trials, there are tests, there are situations that we go through that aren't pleasant. Certainly, the children of Israel, when they were in the wilderness and they were hungry, was not a pleasant situation. 
They were to rejoice not in the fact that they were hungry. They were to rejoice in the fact that they were God's people and he was leading them and directing them and he promised to provide for them and their future was okay. God had not brought them out there to die. Our future is certain. And there are so many doomsday things that are happening in this world as though God is not in control and God is not sovereign. And the church, the people of God, I'm not talking about our church, I'm talking about the people of God, I'm talking about the church in America and the church in the world, is just going to totally fall apart if we don't take some immediate action. But Jesus said, that he would build his church. And the gates of hell cannot stand against it. The future of the church is certain. The future of God's people is certain. He's made promises. But God's people, and I'm not talking about just as a congregation, but I'm real concerned about Christianity in general. The lukewarmness of Christians around the world and this sense of woe is me and life is so hard and difficult and where is God? God's alive and well. But we have to focus on him and what he has done and what he promises to do. See, however, we can become blind to these promises. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. The divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. This is a, the, included the ability to rejoice. Second Peter 1, 4. By which he has granted to us precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Verses 8 and 9. If these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind. He's blind. Meaning you cannot see it. All you can see, like the children of Israel, all they could see was they were hungry and they were in the wilderness. And it skewed how they looked at everything else, their past and their future. D, we become blind when we forget that we have been cleansed from our sins. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind. And now notice this, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. We forget that our sins are done away. That whatever we're going through is not God's punishment. Whatever we are experiencing is not God's wrath. But it was actually for their benefit. 
And so God brought them to a place, a place of wilderness, a place of hunger for two reasons, and I haven't gone into all the verses, but let me summarize them for you. The first was, for their goodness, for their sake, they were in a land of wilderness. Do you remember why? So they wouldn't have to go to battle. So they wouldn't be coming against other nations. God was giving them an opportunity to grow in their faith before they had to go out and do battle. God was protecting them by being, giving, bringing them into a place where nobody else was. And secondly, God wanted to teach them something about his provision. And he was going to give them manna from heaven. And then when they grumbled about that, he sent the quail to show, I can, I can do more than manna. God brings situations into our lives to cause us to grow. Trials to bring about confident faith in him, to trust in him and to be obedient to his word. But we forget. D, revival is needed when the joy of salvation needs to be restored. Verse 12 of Psalm 51, restore to me the joy of your salvation. So number three, what is the nature or characteristic of revival? A, the primary nature of revival is for God's people to find joy in him. Verse 6, will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? That this becomes the focal point. Christ and what he has done and what he has promised and his power and his goodness and his might to focus on God and his sovereignty and his goodness and his love of you and his protection of you and his oversight of you. And take your eyes off of everything else that can cause you to question God's power or God's goodness or God's faithfulness or God's mercy or God's grace that your people may rejoice in you. Not in what he provides, but in him. B, the essence of revival is being restored to a conviction that everything else in life pales and is of no significance in light of our relationship to God. I mentioned this verse the other night. Now I want to give you the whole context of this verse this evening, which is Habakkuk 3.17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. Remember the children of Israel, they don't have any food in the wilderness. This is long after that. The fields yield no food. The flocks be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. That's a pretty dire situation. Doesn't get much worse than that. Talk about economic depression. You talk about needs. The fig tree doesn't blossom. There's no fruit on the vines. The produce of the olive fails. The yields 
The field yields no food. The flocks are cut off from the fold. And there are no herds in the stalls. All right, so there's no sheep. There's no cattle. There's no fruit. There's no grain. We pretty much covered all of the foodstuffs. When everything is taken away, what in the world do we have to rejoice in? What in the world do we have to be thankful for? Isn't it any wonder that God's people are going to gripe and complain? Well, look at verse 18. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Despite that, I'm going to be rejoicing in the Lord. And he says, I'm going to take joy in the God of my salvation. And there we have to understand salvation in the broadest sense of that term. Not just soteriologically, which is very important that our sins are forgiven and we enjoy peace with God. But it's talking about all, all aspects of salvation. It's talking about deliverance. What's the hope? What's the joy when all these things are taken away? The joy is God will still provide. I don't know how he's going to do it. I don't have a clue in the book of Habakkuk. The author doesn't know. But he knows God. He knows God's promises. He knows he'll be okay. Though everything on the outside says exactly the opposite. But he rejoices in the Lord, the God of his deliverance, the one who will help him. Number four, where does revival come from? Answer, revival comes from God alone. Psalm 85, verse 6. Will you not revive us again? that your people may rejoice in you. I really appreciate the translation of the NAS for it brings out the emphatic nature of this verse. I suppose the others didn't translate it this way because they're concerned about redundancy or whatever. I really don't know. But Psalm 85.6 comes alive in the NAS when it says, will thou not thyself revive us again? You, you yourself, O God. There is no other source of revival. It comes from God alone. Only he can revive his people. Only he can restore us. Only he can do a work in our hearts. Only he can move us from grumbling and complaining to rejoicing and giving thanks and praise. It's only him. Number five, what's the instrument of revival? Revival is achieved through prayer. Show us your steadfast love, O oh Lord, grant us your salvation. You see, those are petitions. Show us. Grant us. These are prayers to God. It is a prayer for the ability to see what we have failed to see. Verse 7. Show us your steadfast love, O oh Lord. It's important that when we read this word show, it's not saying to us, Give us your steadfast love. 
This is not a prayer for receiving the steadfast love. It's a prayer that says, open our eyes to it, show us, meaning reveal it to us. We are under your steadfast love. You haven't stopped loving us. You haven't stopped caring for us. You haven't stopped being merciful to us. You haven't stopped forgiving our sins. You have not abandoned us. Teach us that truth. Let me see that in my life and in my experience. And grant us your salvation. Again, verse 9, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. It is a prayer for deliverance from his ungrateful state and grant us your salvation. What is the result of revival? A, revival results in a fresh appreciation for God's word. Verse 8, let me hear what God the Lord will speak. God's word becomes a delight. One of the, the great manifestations of the fruit of the great awakening was the desire of people to hear the word of God. The Puritans were famous for their three-hour sermons. And they really take it on the chin in history books for their three-hour sermons. Who wants to hear a three-hour sermon? Answer, somebody who's craving the Word of God. Somebody who delights and wants to understand it more fully. Relishes in its goodness. You know why the Puritans preached three hours? Because the people wanted to hear. They were begging for more. There were Bible studies. There were all things that were going on. People were hungering and thirsting after the Word of God. That certainly does not characterize Christianity as a whole. The Word of God has fallen out of favor. Preaching has fallen out of favor. Let me hear what the Lord will speak. B, revival results in fresh comfort from the word of God. Let me hear what the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people. He will speak peace to his people. He will comfort his people. He will help his people. You see the, the different emphasis of under God's wrath. No, he's going to be speaking peace to his people. He's, he's going to reassure his people. He's going to give his people the ability to rest, to sleep at night, confidence about the future, and God's provision to move away from this worry and this concern, and a helpful trust in the Lord. He will speak peace to his people. And this book that I've been using in Sunday school, you will notice that it is relying on two sources, the Word of God and the Puritans. These Puritans, who the world says all they talked about was the wrath of God, is so, so 
not true. We know Jonathan Edwards for sinners in the hands of an angry God. That's one sermon. Of which he wrote thousands. He speaks peace to his people. See, revival results in a fresh desire to remain committed to the Lord. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. Uh, let me go back under B, I'm sorry. Note the force of the appositional phrase. Let me hear what the Lord God will speak, for he will speak peace to his people. And now this appositional phrase, to his saints. And if you know grammar, an apposition says that the one and two are the same. God's people are saints, set apart for God, not under his wrath, not under his opposition, but they are separated, dedicated to God. If you're a child of God, you are in a unique relationship to God that the unbeliever isn't. You belong to him. You always will. And he'll always care for you. See, revival results in a fresh desire to remain committed to the Lord, but let them not turn back to folly. We, we won't want to go back to that way. So much better to have the peace and the comfort and the love of God. So, D, revival results in a fresh confidence in what God is doing. Verse 9, surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. See, revival results. Oh, I'll, I'll continue on. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground, and righteousness looks down from the sky. God is doing all of that. E, revival results in a fresh confidence in the future. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make footsteps his way. Yes, the Lord will give what is good. Can you say that tonight? The Lord's going to give what's good. Everything that he does in his sovereignty, we know the verse, all things work together for good. Take it as that. Whatever it is, whatever comes into your life, whatever hardship, whatever difficulty, whatever unpleasant situation, don't sit around and grumble about it and complain because you don't like what's happening in life. But remember, God is good. God is good all the time. And he has a purpose and he has a reason. For everything that comes into our life, even the trials, even the hardships, even the difficulties, to teach us about himself and about ourselves. Don't give up on God. God will never give up on you. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. And we ask that you would guard our hearts. Help us. Help us to see your goodness. Help us to see your mercy. Help us to put on blinders to everything the world shouts at us and all the negative influences that are around about us.
All the perspectives that fail to look at God. All the, the doubting that is even creeping within Christendom because we're failing to believe that you're over all things. And we are to submit to you in all things. And we're to be thankful, knowing that you have a purpose, you have a reason. Guard us not only individually, but collectively. Before, even as in the nation of Israel, the grumbling and the complaining spread, so it can be even within Christendom as a whole. There can be a, a whole different view of God and what he is doing that brings doubt and uncertainty and complaint. Oh Lord, give us a taste. Give us a sense of your love, of your peace, of your protection, of your goodness to us. Open our hearts and minds and eyes to see you as the great provider, to see your deliverance, to see your promises, to assure us of a certain blessed hope, not just us here tonight, but as a people of God, Lord, as there was a great awakening in New England that spread to our entire peoples, may there be a great awakening in the church. And Lord, may the fruits of revival come, including the salvation of many as we again rejoice in you and speak to others about your goodness and what you have done to us. Lord, glorify your name and let it begin with us. Help us, Lord, to speak well of you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much, and we are dismissed.